0: Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Jim carrick Burtwell, Changeboard's CEO and founder. The Future Talent Podcast series is available wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Martin Hottas, Managing Director at City and Guilds Group. Martin has over 30 years of experience in the skills sector and previously led Siemens Professional Education in the UK and then EMEA. Since joining City & Guilds Group in October 2018, he's led the skills agenda with a particular focus on STEM skills. In this podcast, I asked Martin about the state of apprenticeships in the UK's engineering sector and how business leaders can create cultures of learning in their business. I began by asking Martin about how our European neighbours address the skills agenda and how the UK can improve.
1: If we start with Siemens, that's a good starting point because obviously... Um, Siemens is a learning organization and basically over um, over my lifetime at Siemens I worked for Siemens twice I worked for Siemens in the 1990s and I worked for Siemens in the 2000s um, and uh, always in learning jobs so so basically uh, we uh, in in Germany in in general uh, lifelong learning is seen as a, as a necessary concept and big employers habitually invest in um, consistently in their skills pipeline which obviously helps on all kinds of fronts it helps by getting fresh blood into a business it also means that you have a really homogeneous workforce because you you automatically by bringing in a new cohort every year means that your age in your, your average age in your workforce remains constant, and it means that you don't have big gaps in, in terms of age profiles of employees, which uh, is quite typical for bri- uh, British businesses, in particular in industries that were privatised, where you used to have a lot of investment uh, in learning, and then when once the businesses were privatised, for example, energy providers, um, the privatised business businesses then stopped apprenticeships, and when you look at their age distribution now, you can see that there's a gap of 10 years. And yeah. you wouldn't see that in a German business. In a German business, and, th- and I appreciate this as a generalization, uh, you have um, a continual investment seen as underpinning business performance. And the, the other thing it does is it looks at um, where the order book will be at the end of, appre- of the apprenticeship when making an investment decision, not at the current need. And you sometimes see this in In the UK, that uh, training is seen more transactional and not strategic. Mm.
0: Well, I was just going to pick up on that. I mean, to achieve the German model, you do need a strategic understanding of what's the longer term view of, I guess, our business, but then also the the, the economy as a whole over a much longer period of time. I mean, are there any signs that the UK is starting to think like that?
1: Well, it depends. (laughs) The the answer is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so, so m- some of my customers are in business sectors that have uh, a long planning horizon. So, uh, nuclear decommissioning, for example, has the big advantage that you know you have a problem that will last another couple of hundred years, and because of that, their skills planning is very strategic. Mm. And uh, if you have a strategic relationship with them, you can help. Them achieve their objectives and prosper yourself, uh, and that is very close to the German model. In uh, especially in fast-moving consumer goods, though, it's a completely different picture where um, people take uh, a more short-termist view, and we are much more like America in this context Mm. compared to France or or Germany, where you have typically a 10-year business plan or something like that. Mm. In in the UK, you probably have a six months to two years, maybe three years. And that then makes it really difficult to invest in apprenticeships because, especially in STEM-related subjects, an apprenticeship is, what, three years? So if your business plan doesn't span that long, then it doesn't make any sense to invest. Uh. And and that then leads to the unintended consequences of wage inflation for shortage of uh, skills. And that then gets us to the point where we have um, all the issues that are well known, that you don't have uh, enough supply, uh, demand outstripping supply, and that means that uh, A, quality suffers and B, prices go up.
0: Mm. And you touched on apprenticeships. I mean, just, l- again, picking up the comparison between somewhere like Germany, or Germany in particular in the UK. Uh, we've spoken about this before. Germany has a different appreciation of apprenticeships um, in social status apart from anything yeah.
1: else. Um, a- any kind of reflections on that? yeah, so there, there, there's two fundamental things here. So uh, uh, the first one is money. So apprenticeships in Germany are financed in a completely different way to the UK. So Germany also has a a training levy, but it's not um, it's not collected in the same way. It's basically uh, every business has to be a member of the Chamber of Commerce or the Chamber of Trade. Uh, and that then means that their membership fee, which is akin to a levy, hmm. uh, finances apprenticeships. And that means apprenticeships are free, hmm. in inverted commas, because you've paid for them via your levy uh, for your membership.
0: And is that levy proportionate to your size yes. or number it, of employees? It, it, yes, it runs
1: on your turnover. Yeah, And that means that uh, small employers have the same access to the labor market as big employers, which is a thing that doesn't happen here hmm. and distorts the market somewhat. Hmm. Uh, So that's number one. Number two is uh, apprenticeships in Germany haven't changed since 1900. Mm. So uh, you will find that in every family there's at least one apprentice. And uh, there's also no glass ceiling because um, German companies are very used to cyclical investment. And typically somebody who starts as an apprentice could end up being the managing director of a business. And it's seen as one of the career paths that you might Wish to choose rather than an uh, academic career. Mm. It is true to say that uh, over the last couple of years, more young Germans have gone to university than uh, than chose a fo- vocational career. So it's a similar trend to the UK, but um, by and large, uh, still about forty-five percent of school leavers go into apprenticeships, and. Um, uh, at, at, at 16 typically but there's also higher levels where you basically join an apprenticeship after a, a levels and end up with a degree as a byproduct mm. so so that is a well-trodden path and it's uh, in Germany it's a social comp- um, a social agreement between trade unions, the government and employers. So that makes the German model very strong, but it also makes it very slow. Mm. So in, when you look at digital products, for example, so digital apprenticeships, the UK has been very quick to adopt and is arguably one of the leading countries in this. In Germany, there's only one apprenticeship. In the UK, there's maybe 40. And uh, so there's there's pros and cons for, for, for both systems.
0: Well, being a kind of a, a bit of an optimist myself, I, I'm, I'm inclined to look at the, the opportunities for the UK as a late adopter, if you like, of apprenticeships. Um, I mean, if we were to kind of explore that in in more detail, there is a huge need. I mean, Engineering UK um, uh, came out with uh, a statistic that there's 200,000 people needed uh, level three engineering, with level three engineering skills every year between now and, uh, or in the last few years, uh, up to 2024. Um, I, is that demand being met in any way from, from your
1: perspective? Um, the short answer is no, but but that's also the problem with it. Uh, so these statistics come out all the time, and you would expect the economy to fall over, but clearly it doesn't. So so it feels a bit like scaremongering, but in, in reality what it does do is it pushes up the price of delivery because it's a scarce commodity. And um, whilst the apprenticeships are not the panacea, there should be seen as an alternative route into high-quality employment. There's some interesting statistics uh, out there with regards to earnings potential. So if you uh, secure an apprenticeship in a blue-chip employer at the age of 16 um, and continue your your continuous development after your initial apprenticeship at Level 3 and go on to do a degree apprenticeship afterwards, which is quite common, Mm -hmm. especially in engineering employers, you will actually have earned for 10 years... Almost ten years, and be at the same end point as somebody who's joined from university. Mm. Uh, but you will have earned for ten years and paid into your pension, and we, you will not have student debt. Mm. So it is actually a clever way of doing it. It's, mm. it's not for everybody, but it should be. It should be seen as an as an equal opportunity to forge a lifelong career.
0: Mm. And and I'm also quite keen to explore with you whether um, the UK, whether employers, it seems to me. Because the apprenticeship levy has been around for two years this April, um, there seems to be a bit of a pivot from the HR directors that I'm talking about where the focus is no longer just on entry level. It is on upskilling the rest of your workforce and,
1: and looking at using the apprenticeship levy pot for that. Are, are you seeing the same? Yeah, so, so City and Guilds obviously provides apprenticeships and um, we do see the same. And where it is... Um, value adding, then this is a legitimate use of the levy. Mm. Uh, Clearly, it is more difficult to explain to somebody who is already in full-time employment why they should embark on another apprenticeship. Yeah. Uh, But uh, as a structured piece of learning, it clearly helps. Um, Over 80% of the workforce of 2020 or 2025 are in work now. Mm. And uh, the biggest, headache that I had when I was working for um, a, a private company was how to upskill my existing workforce, not how to bring new people in. Bringing new people in, especially in digital skills, is relatively straightforward because we, our children are a lot more digital than we are. Yeah. But uh, to actually get uh, existing employees up to speed with the latest technology was quite a challenge. And um, an apprenticeship could be a good vehicle to do that. Mm. I'm not saying it's necessarily the best vehicle because you have a lot of unintended consequences. So for example, in order for this program to be an apprenticeship, the the learner needs to spend 20% of their time uh, off the job in inverted commas, i.e. learning new skills, Mm. which we have found quite challenging. Mm. Because clearly existing employees have a full diary and to be able to reference that they have actually spent 20% of the time whilst they were on this apprenticeship on learning new skills and learning new things is quite difficult. I mean,
0: just picking up on that, again, I've had a number of conversations with employers about this and there's a bit of ambiguity around what off the job actually means. Because depending on interpretation, off the job actually can mean applied learning of the things that you have you know learnt whether it's on an online online materials or whether it is some of those days away
1: yeah no no i fully agree with that and and yes i also agree that the definition is quite ambiguous but um i think it's the risk here is actually a reputational risk so if for argument's sake it's abused um it will basically make it impossible for anybody else to benefit from um an apprenticeship I- when you're already in employment, so so my my advice would be to be actually quite meticulous and agreeing with your training provider upfront what you classify as off the job learning so that they can reference that to uh, the education and skills funding agency yes or or to Ofsted should you have an inspection yeah and that's the only way you can actually. Um, avoid reputation reputational damage but also guarantee a high quality training program because ultimately the reason why you do the apprenticeship is because you have identified a skills gap in your business and you want uh, the chosen person to actually plug that gap hmm. and uh, I, I usually when I talk to my customers talk about uh, investment in in machinery for example. So you would, if you were to buy a new piece of equipment and uh, it's supposed to give you higher productivity, that's exactly what you're looking for. And you, you and the same applies for giving a person new skills. You can make them more productive mm. and it requires an upfront investment and that 20% is the investment.
0: Mm. That's very interesting. And, w- and what about uh, training the, the trainer? And by that I mean um, the person that's doing the, uh, the apprenticeship training they do need to to uh, have a, a really good relationship with their line manager who's bought into the fact they're doing this trainer and can allow them to apply the learning that they're gaining. Are there some risks or do you see risks that the apprenticeship actually ends up knowing more than the, the line manager or the line manager doesn't necessarily know how to apply that learning?
1: Yeah, there's, there's clearly uh, risks there and there's also co- um, potential for conflict. So, so when we do this uh, in, in our technical training cluster, we typically go and speak to our customers and ask them what they see the end product look like. Mm-hmm. And then we design the journey with them backwards to, to where the person's starting point is. And by, by ag- agreeing this and documenting it, it gives uh, the apprentice in inverted commas a, uh, a journey and the line manager also the path that the learner needs to take. And because it's agreed in advance, it's a lot easier to go back and say, actually, when we started this, this this is what we agreed, and this is the projected outcome. Hmm. It doesn't always work, of course. Hmm. Uh, Human beings are complex, yeah, and and obviously business priorities change as well. But uh, but by and large, uh, this is the only way you can... You can help your customer get a return on investment. Yeah.
0: And it seems to me that the one of one of the benefits proposition um, to employers of the investment in training, whether that's apprenticeships or anything else for that matter, in an open talent economy, um, employees are looking for that personal development. A- and the conversations I have, it's about retention you know employers understand that there's a pretty much an open contract with their staff and their you know their their talented staff have a you know a, an ability to 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 move in all sorts of ways now and are prepared to move but they'll be encouraged to stay because of the developments that they're getting from that employer
1: yeah that that clearly uh chimes with the research that we've been conducting as as a group so Uh, As an organization, we we do lifelong learning, and that's our core business. So City & Guilds has been around for 140 years and has, as a charity, its purpose is to help people get get into a job, develop them on the job to make sure that um, they have a career. And uh, as a byproduct, of course, their employer thrives. Hmm. So we've been doing this for 140 years, and the research that we sort of do um, uh, underpins exactly what you say. Uh, in we, we are almost in full employment in the UK now, at 3.5% uh, unemployment, so mm. that is almost mm. full employment. Skilled people find it easy to move, and once you've um, met primary needs, then secondary needs uh, become a lot more important, and one of them is, uh, is, of course, the opportunity to see a career development and see a career path, which is increasingly difficult uh, as we move more into the gig economy. So good employers will... Um, give opportunities, not necessarily just vertically, but also horizontally, and and retain staff longer. And also, whilst they're retaining them, have more engaged staff, which is actually the biggest risk to, to any employer is, is employees who who don't care, frankly. Mm. Uh, and by by continuous development, you clearly keep people engaged, and they are probably, m- well, not probably, they'll they're more likely to go the extra mile. Um, whilst um, if you don't do that, obviously people will vote with their feet.
0: Mm. And in terms of looking at kind of broader solutions to this creating a culture of learning um, within organisations, we've talked before about the relationship, a strategic partnership, if you like, between employers and training providers. Um, Could you expand a little bit more on that?
1: Yeah, so, so at the... The UK is unique in the world in as much as there is a open market for training provision for apprenticeships and skills. There is commercially available courses everywhere in the world, of course, but we are the only country that I know of that actually has a training market for apprenticeships, which is generated through the apprenticeship levy and beforehand through government funding. And um, because of that. Uh, It's often seen as transactional, so I have an immediate requirement, so I'll buy something. But uh, if you then go back to full circle to where we started our conversation, what it needs to be is a long-term partnership because you will only get the best return on your investment if your training provider understands your business drivers. Hmm. And clearly, if you uh, embark on an apprenticeship that is a couple of years long, it's very important to understand that uh, the apprentice will only add full value to your business at the end of their apprenticeship. So that means you need to plan a couple of years ahead and potentially plan for things ahead of the curve hmm. uh, or sometimes maybe speculatively. And the only way you can do that is by having a long term relationship with a training provider, because clearly the training provider will need to make a core investment in order to be able to give your staff the best start to their career possible. And that could be investment in equipment. Mm-hmm. It could be investment in teaching capability. Mm. It could uh, also be uh, acquiring new skills on your behalf mm. and then acting as a multiplier.
0: Mm. That's very interesting. Um, I- I- in terms of where you think we're we're likely to go with lifelong learning, um, I'm interested to know um, or or, you know quiz you about employers who are looking at this really holistically um, and have a sense of the adjacent skills that they might have with the within their employee population uh, as well as the sort of the new skills that they need to bring into the business but also the ability for people to duck in and out of learning in in a more fluent way I mean I'm sure you're very familiar with uh, the you know, the 100-year life, you know, Andrew Scott, Linda Gratton, um, and, and, you know, what I think it articulates really well is the idea that that three-stage life, you know, education, employment, retirement is has, has, has a completely a kind of yeah. busted flush. Um, but I'm interested to, to to understand from you if you're seeing that much more iterative, um, ongoing
1: learning happening within organizations. So, So when I was working for one of those organizations, that was basically the game changer for us uh, that we we basically accepted that everything was far more fluid and also accepted that we had to change and because of that we uh, we created a lot more agility which meant that my previous employer could execute projects in a different way so for example uh, some projects were crowdsourced within the company so people who were you would never have considered because they didn't have a specific uh, qualification, uh, could volunteer a percentage of their productive time into a project. And whilst that sounded in the early days like the Wild West and really scary, what it actually meant was that the business gained a much broader skill space across the board. And because of that, it meant that it could do more with fewer people. So that's, that's uh, my previous life. Yeah. In my current life, I see pockets of this uh, in particular in the digital sector mm. where you have the highest fluidity and also you've got the biggest quantum leaps in technology. So I think the step-on-step-off approach to learning will become the norm. Mm. And I also think that the propensity to go towards self-employment and the gig economy where you hire for a specific project and then off hire and uh, you so you only create transient relationships will mean that people will access learning before they take on a new contract to either brush up on knowledge or acquire new knowledge and skills before they take that contract Mm. what that means for apprenticeships though or could mean for apprenticeships is that they become Uh, a generational thing so rather than having a fixed period of learning for a year two years three years whatever it is and then ending up with a um, apprenticeship qualification you might actually get lots of little components on the way and it might take you 10 years to get there but um, you actually access learning as you need it
0: yeah you 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 touched also um on the agility that's required um and I'm interested to get your take on what that means. I guess from a mindset perspective, because there's a there's a big focus on the skills and knowledge that one needs to acquire. But actually, again, talking to a lot of um, uh, senior business people, HR directors, they're saying the game changer is with changes a constant. It's for our staff to have a certain agility, and and I'm always interested in in what people mean by that rather than assuming a, a knowledge of that?
1: So from my, from my old life, uh, what that meant, uh, transferable skills. It meant that we had to change people's mindset with regards to they turn up for work in a specific business segment and expect to work in this business segne- segment and do nothing else. It meant that we wanted people to come to work and say I work for uh, the business and I might today work for this segment, but tomorrow I might work for somebody completely different within the business group. And I can't do this from my desk if I still have a desk because in many respects there were hot desks and there were there was the concept of home working. But so what it meant was that the contract between you and your employer was for a, a period of time, and in that time what the employer wanted of you was your ingenuity, your um, constructive criticism and and you as an individual, not just as uh, a person who turns up, sits behind a desk for seven hours and goes home.
0: Kind of an early interpretation of, of,
1: of literally bring your whole self to work. Completely. And that was quite scary. And it is scary because it, it requires you to behave completely differently. And... Uh, for generations we've been conditioned that work is work and and, uh, outside of work is outside of work and you never mix the two. So for example some of uh, of our more mature employees found it really really difficult that you could have uh, flexi-time and you could start a project maybe you started working at 12 as a group and then worked till 8 at night hmm. because that's what you decided to do as a group. Hmm. For the overall business, it didn't really matter whether you did the, the work from 8 o'clock in the morning till 2 o'clock in the afternoon or whether you did it from 2 o'clock in the afternoon till 10 o'clock in the afternoon, it didn't matter. What mattered was that the end product was delivered to budget um, to, uh, with the right quality and to customer expectations. And the, But that's a really difficult thing to get your head around. And I, I mean, I struggled with that myself. Um, But when I started working in international teams or in global teams and you had to work across different time zones, then actually you realize that time is fluid and it's actually a a constraining concept. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's talking to the concept of ambiguity, isn't it? Um, uh, As well as flexibility um, and breaking certain kind of, you know, fixed parameters um, by which we understand work.
1: Yeah, that's where obviously VUCA comes from as a as a concept. So volatile and certain. Uh, ch- some people call it changing. Other people call it chaotic. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 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 I think that is uh, it's in smaller businesses. That's probably not a problem because in a smaller business you do not have segmentation as much as you do. Have Everybody it, mucks in. Yeah, in in a big business, uh, I, I I have been working predominantly in big businesses, uh, blue chips, multi uh, global companies, and uh, for those that was a, a a big problem, but it also, did the benefits were amazing, A, for the people, so the human resource benefits were great, the mental health benefits are fantastic because it gives you a new lease of life, it, it, it breaks monotony, uh, it also means that you can engage with different people to the people that you would typically engage with, mm. which broadens your horizon, so it's got lots and lots of fantastic benefits, but it also had a really interesting uh, byproduct, which was um, that uh, you needed less infrastructure Hmm. because if you work more flexibly you need fewer buildings because people don't necessarily come to work every day Hmm. Uh, and that is uh, a bottom line impact that is quite significant because it's not just the cost of running the building it's obviously the maintenance it's the insurance and everything else that goes with it Hmm.
0: but it also talks of a a mindset change doesn't it a behavioral change Um, and that's often the hardest to to achieve Um, again a a recent conversation someone summed it up pretty well and they said that a lot of people in their careers get to a certain level say within the management grades where they are technically highly competent Um, and then when they're interfacing with uh, the business they can be very helpful but helpful was looked at in quite a pejorative way in that What actually this person was saying, they needed to be um, confident in terms of being able to agitate, to provoke, to challenge, and to also construct multiple scenarios. Um, And that's what the business really appreciated. And that's a completely different way of thinking about things. I don't know if that's something that you you can relate to in terms of, a a real almost an inflection change that's required
1: in people's careers completely and this is a really difficult one to get right because um, in the early stages of your career if you think about a typical vertical career you get promoted purely by competence your journey is driven by you being the best in a specific topic Mm. and when you get to a certain level as you quite rightly say it pivots Uh, because then you have somebody who is very good at the competence and what you are paid for is to finding new ways or better ways of executing for the benefit of the business, whatever uh, your business may be. And that is really difficult because uh, if your company culture uh, is command and control and rewards purely on technical competence or frowns upon Uh, freedom fighters or terrorists or whatever you want to call them then uh, you basically will find at the more senior levels you have a dearth of talent Mm. and that is very difficult and we we see that in in our customers a lot that people are grappling with that and uh, we we always try and advocate uh, diversity uh, not just in terms of gender diversity but in terms of inclusion Mm. so diversity is a fact you can't do anything about that this is what we need to do and it's the right thing to do, but inclusion is a choice and you should choose, I think enlightened businesses choose um, inclusion as uh, a differentiator because you may have more difficult conversations, but because of those conversations and the different points of view and angles and life experiences that are brought to the table, you will have a better future and a better solution going forward. Mm.
0: i I agree with that um i also think that's entirely dependent on the leadership within the organization um giving permission for that and 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 adopting you know culturally more agility
1: in terms of its culture its mindset Uh, yeah i couldn't agree more and it's actually you shouldn't give permission because if you have to give permission to be critical then you've actually failed Yeah, Uh, implicit it it, it should it should be encouraged and it should be uh, it should be celebrated, but it needs to be within parameters. So it needs to be constructive. It can't be divisive, in terms of uh, by by being um, racist, sexist, or whatever. So it needs to be inclusive and constructive. Mm. But that then is very very rich. Mm. And it uh, and you should also celebrate the fact that we're all different and we bring different strengths. Very
0: good. Well, look, Martin, I could talk and talk and ask a bunch of questions but i've really enjoyed that conversation thanks very much thank you so much thanks for listening to hear more podcasts like this make sure you subscribe to the future talent podcast series wherever you get your podcasts